High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a cry for Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from inspecting the and advocate the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. In our last two episodes, we broadly surveyed the history of communism and the persecution of communists and alleged communists in Hollywood. Beginning with this episode, we're going to begin to focus on the stories of some individuals whose lives were impacted by this climate of Cold War insanity. First up, Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker lived in Los Angeles and worked on screenplays on and off for 30 years, from the mid-1930s through the early 1960s. She was nominated for two Oscars and worked with legends like David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock. But she was never typical. By the time Parker and her second husband arrived in Hollywood to cash in on the industry's need for dialogue writers in the early days of talkies, Dorothy was already a celebrity. She had been the toast of bootleg gin-swilling literary New York in the 1920s. She began as a writer for Vogue and Vanity Fair magazine, who became a celebrated author of criticism and verse while holding court daily over lunch at the Algonquin Hotel and nightly at cocktail parties in her own apartment. Her clique of writers and wits, including Robert Sherwood, Alexander Wolcott, Donald Ogden Stewart, and Dorothy's platonic soulmate Robert Benchley, became known as the Algonquin Roundtable named after where they first came together at a party in 1919 to celebrate Wolcott's return from World War I. Dorothy and her crew became so associated with the post-war, devil-may-care hedonism of the 1920s that it was quite a shock to some when Parker became increasingly devoted to socialist politics and causes, beginning in the late 1920s and escalating through World War II. Her dedication to her beliefs made her a pariah in New York and Hollywood, even before the blacklist. During and after the blacklist, it only got worse. Join us, won't you, for the blacklist story of Dorothy Parker. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. 
So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Dorothy Parker became a legend in her first decade as a writer, establishing a persona that was so uniquely of the moment that it's made her synonymous with that moment, even as her life and work would take very different turns over the following decades. In the 1920s, Parker was a married woman who virtually flaunted her promiscuity while becoming famous using the surname of her absentee husband. Her suicide attempts were also legend. Ernest Hemingway wrote a mean-spirited poem called To the Tragic Poetess, Mocking Them, as well as, quote, the Jewish cheeks of your plump ass. Her determination to live life on her own terms feels like an example of feminism, but at the same time, Dorothy always preferred to be the only woman in a group of men, and one of her first successes at Vanity Fair was a poem called Women, a Hate Song. I hate women. They get on my nerves. There are the domestic ones. They are the worst. Every moment is packed with happiness. They breathe deeply and walk with large strides, eternally hurrying home to see about dinner. They are the kind who say, with a tender smile, Money's not everything. They are always confronting me with dresses, saying, I made this myself. They read woman's pages and try out the recipes. Oh, how I hate that kind of woman. This was satire infused with genuine grievance, as was Parker's follow-up, Men, a Hate Song. Throughout the 20s, she would develop her skill at vivisection through quip. Though she grew up well-off, her father, Jacob Henry Rothschild, was a garment industry pioneer whose profits owed much to immigrant sweatshop labor. As an adult, Dorothy had always professed that she hated having money and didn't need it. As a culture of excess grew around Wall Street, banker types became easy targets for Dorothy's gimlet eye. She liked living in hotels, keeping her possessions to a minimum. She did spend money on designer clothes, but she was also frequently broke. Dorothy's first husband, Edwin Parker, was a stockbroker when they met, as well as a heavy drinker. Still a teetotaler at the time, Dorothy overlooked Parker's evident alcohol problem, in part because he was so supportive of her independence and her career. When the U.S. joined World War I in 1917, Eddie Parker, intent on enlisting, asked Dorothy to marry him. She'd later say she was a bride for, quote, about five minutes before her husband went off to war. So Dorothy went back to work. She had started making a name for herself at Vogue magazine, where she gamely tried out all the newest fads in diets and beauty products. Then she transferred to Vanity Fair, where she would soon succeed P.G. Wodehouse as the magazine's drama critic. This appointment lasted until January 1920, when Wodehouse returned to Vanity Fair. Her dismissal from Vanity Fair coincided almost exactly with the passing of Prohibition, which initiated major changes in the social life of cities like New York. 
For Dorothy, now cobbling together a living through a flurry of freelance work for publications like Ainsley's and the Saturday Evening Post, lunches with the gang at the Algonquin would often stretch into the late afternoon, when the artist, Nasa McMain, would open her studio to serve homemade gin to the Algonquin crew, as well as luminaries like Charlie Chaplin, Paul Robeson, Ethel Barrymore, Irving Berlin, and George Gershwin. Eddie, back from war, had returned to New York and his stockbroker position, but he had not exactly returned to Dorothy. He had developed an addiction to morphine, and he was drinking more than ever. Most nights after work, he went straight to a speakeasy. A tiny slip of a brunette, it took Dorothy a while to develop a taste for booze. Dorothy couldn't initially keep up with her husband's drinking, and her husband couldn't match his wife's increasing success or the fast-talking crew she rolled with. Eddie refused to hang with the Algonquin crew, and it doesn't seem like he was missed. Dorothy's own drinking steadily increased throughout the first half of the 1920s. She and Robert Benchley would congregate at a speakeasy run by Tony Soma, the father of John Houston's fourth wife and Angelica Houston's mother, At home, Eddie encouraged her to drink with him, which would usually start out fun and often ended badly, with the husband storming off and disappearing for days at a time and the wife waking up with bruises or a black eye. In July 1922, they separated. A month later, Dorothy would turn 29, and shortly after that, she'd finish her first short story called Such a Pretty Little Picture. Distraught over the collapse of her own marriage, Dorothy funneled her feelings into a thinly-veiled dramatization of her friend Robert Benchley's life as a suburban husband and father, longing for the escape and freedom of bachelorhood in the city. Over the next few months, Dorothy would have an abortion and fall into a deep, alcohol-worsened depression. One January day, she stayed in bed all day drinking, and then, knowing she was due to see a play that night, she ordered dinner up to her rooms. Before the food arrived, she caught sight of Eddie's razor in the bathroom and slit both wrists. This may have been impulsive. Why kill yourself when you've already ordered dinner? Or it may have been a calculated cry for help. She knew she would be found by the delivery boy, There were ups and downs. Her play Soft Music was a financial failure, but it made Parker herself a known playwright, which increased her ability to attract interesting men. The New Yorker launched, and Dorothy became a contributor. She spent all of her money on clothes, cigarettes, perfume, and booze, and wrote the Algonquin, where she was now living, IOUs for her rent. In 1926, she discovered the sedative Veronal, and another suicide attempt followed. She recovered and traveled to Europe with Benchley and Ernest Hemingway. There were good times with the F. Scott Fitzgeralds in Paris and bad times in Spain, which would lead to her falling out with Hemingway. She returned to New York and spent her nights with her crew, discussing the important things, being, as she'd put it, life, sex, literature, the drama, what is a gentleman and whether or not to go on to Helen Morgan's club when the place closes. Throughout this time, Dorothy was slowly building a reputation, and by 1927, she was a bona fide national celebrity with a collection of poems called Enough Rope on the bestseller list. In the late 1980s, public enemies Chuck D. said that rap music was like the TV news network that black America never had. In the late 1920s, Dorothy Parker's poems were that equivalent for the new urban woman of the decade. In her usually short, rhyming verses, Dorothy reported on what it was like to be part of the first generation of American women who really had the freedom to live alone and decide how to spend their time without having to yield to a husband or a family's expectations. Her poems describe the complicated emotions underlying one-night stands. They dissected sexual politics They ruminated on what it was like to have power over men and to use it, and also to be powerless. At her brightest and most defiant, 
she planted a flag for the pursuit of what the poem Observation called fun, which translated to drinking what she wanted when she wanted to, and pursuing men and enjoying being pursued, and generally opening herself up to possibility and chaos, rather than following a path of security, damning the consequences. And there were consequences. Most of the poems in Enough Rope were about heartbreak. The most famous one, called Resume, has its narrator choosing life by default, because all of the suicide methods are too unpleasant. Here it is read by Jennifer Jason Lee, playing Parker in the film Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. Resume. Razors pain you. Rivers are damp. Acids stain you. And drugs cause cramp. Guns aren't lawful. Nooses give. Gas smells awful. You might as well live. The prevailing tone of Enough Rope is of devil-may-care solipsism. The poems draw a portrait of a woman who is consumed by what's going on in her own head and her heart and can't see a world beyond her bedroom and the bar. Her barbed wit was a needle, always threatening to flatten anyone who ascribed too much meaning to anything. That's why it was quite a shock to some that just as the collection was writing up the bestseller list— Dorothy Parker suddenly became politicized. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The summer of 1927, Dorothy joined a number of other prominent intellectuals in Boston to protest the death sentences of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vansetti two Italian anarchists who had been convicted of murdering two men in a robbery. The evidence against Sacco and Vincetti was tenuous and highly disputed. Five years after the crimes, another man confessed to them, and the verdict sparked an international outcry. It was the premier criminal justice scandal of the day, perhaps the first true crime event in the modern sense, one that electrified observers in the same way we become obsessed and take sides over the stories of people like Stephen Avery or the West Memphis Three today. Sacco and Vincetti's supporters believed they had been targeted and convicted for their political beliefs, and that because they were foreigners, they were considered disposable, thus blowing up the notion of burden of proof. Some of the protests were organized by the Communist Party. While the governor of Massachusetts debated whether or not to grant a reprieve, Dorothy joined a demonstration on Beacon Street. They sang the workers' rights anthem, the Internationale, and Dorothy, the biggest celebrity in the crowd, was taunted by onlookers, shouting, Bolsheviki! and Red Scum! She was arrested for loitering and sauntering, and spent a few hours in jail. And her involvement in the Sacco and Vanzetti protests which didn't work. The pair were executed via electric chair on August 22, 1927. Dorothy, for the first time, aligned herself with a cause. Back in New York, she found that most of her roundtable friends were still totally indifferent to the ideas that now inflamed her. Class struggle, the rights of workers, the freedom of speech and thought. To the consternation of many friends, Dorothy declared herself a convert to socialism. Her lifestyle didn't change, but Parker's heart and soul, as she called them, were born anew. In 1928, Dorothy finalized her divorce and moved out of the Algonquin. At some point, she had a brief and amicably ended affair with Howard Dietz, a publicity director at MGM. And in 1929, via Dietz, Dorothy was offered a three-month writing contract at the studio. Dorothy was an unlikely screenwriter. After losing her job at Vanity Fair a decade earlier, Dorothy had taken a freelance gig writing titles for a D.W. Griffith film. But it was a one-off, and in the intervening years, she had developed a dim view of movies. 
But this was an opportunity she couldn't pass up. Though still a highly celebrated writer, her short story, Big Blonde, had just won a major literary prize. As ever, Dorothy needed money. When she arrived in Los Angeles, she found that her fame didn't quite translate to the Western coast, and neither did her lifestyle. She didn't drive, and everyone in Hollywood went to bed early, and there, writers were the lowest of the totem pole. Nobody knew who she was. When Irving Thalberg's office sent her a memo on a script draft imploring her to, quote, think of the little totties, Dorothy muttered, God, and how I hate children. Soon she was back in New York, but not for long. In New York in 1932, Dorothy met the man who would be the most instrumental in her future Hollywood career, Alan Campbell. Alan Campbell was an actor who had published a few short stories. He was beautiful, like a young, much better looking F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was 29 and Dorothy was 40, and they were smitten with one another. Alan was Dorothy's physical type, and she was flattered that such a young man desired her, although their age difference made her nervous enough that she usually didn't mention it. Alan loved Dottie's wit and saw immediately that she was kind of a mess when left to her own devices. He wanted to take care of her. He started by suggesting she change her hair, and when she did, she was so taken by her new look that she kept it until she died. In 1934, they married. Soon thereafter, they met an agent who suggested they go to Hollywood and sell themselves as a husband and wife writing team. They were offered a combined $1,250 a week to work at Paramount. That was a small fortune in those days, equivalent to about a million dollars a year today. Dorothy was against it, but again, her debts had mounted to unconscionable levels, and Alan talked her into it. He was excited about the prospect of proving himself as more than just a pretty face, and he told her that as soon as their debts were paid off, they'd go back to New York. Dorothy's might have been the name that got the Campbell-Parker team work, but it was Alan who ensured that they were able to produce work. Dorothy's first solo sojourn in Hollywood had ended without a produced screenplay, and there were indications at the beginning of her second sojourn that she was incapable of writing a whole movie. Dorothy was a master at firing off one-liners, and she'd built a body of poems and reviews, stringing together a dozen of the same— and she had started developing a talent for writing short stories of limited incidents that crusted acidic wit around a gooey core of melancholy. But she had never been much good at sustained writing or developed narrative. She hadn't written novels because she couldn't manage to concentrate on any one thing for that long. Even a magazine article posed a serious challenge, and so much prodding from editors that the result seemed hardly worth their effort. The short fiction she would turn out was drawn almost entirely from life, her own or that of her friends. In the language of modern Hollywood, she would have been someone you called for a punch-up, to provide a dozen new lines in order to give an existing character a sense of humor, or to liven up a few scenes. You probably would not think to hire her to take a blank page and a concept and turn them into a screenplay. That's where Alan Campbell came in. Though himself new to screenwriting, Alan was able to see what his wife could do and train himself to do what she couldn't. Thus, they developed a system. Alan would structure the screenplay and sketch out the action of the scene, and then Dorothy would come in and pepper the structure with snappy dialogue. Dorothy wasn't proud of the work they were doing on forgettable films like the Bing Crosby vehicle, Here Is My Heart, and she still objected to the pretentious nouveau riche elitism of Hollywood life in principle. But she was drinking less, and she had completely stopped talking about suicide. And whether she knew it or not, Dorothy was playing a role in shaping the definitive character of the first wave of talkies. In this scene from the film Hands Across the Table, one of Campbell and Parker's first assignments, Carol Lombard plays a would-be gold-digging manicurist who gets an assignment from her boss, played by character actress Ruth Donnelly. Donnelly's comebacks are vintage Dorothy Parker. Reggie, I'm going to give you your Christmas present in May. What? The answer to every working girl's prayer just called up for a manicure. So get out your hope chest, dearie. Who is he? Theodore Drew III, baby. <gasps> oh, three's a bad number for That doesn't Reg- mean anything. It means he must have had a grandfather. 
Is he rich? Not only rich, but young and handsome. Well, what do you talk about to a guy like that? What is, what is he like? Blondes, probably. Well, you can't talk about that. Then tell him how you just love polo. That's always safe. Thanks. By 1935, Alan and Dorothy seemed to have abandoned their plan to move back to New York when they had enough money to pay their debts. Dorothy insisted that Hollywood money wasn't real money, but congealed snow that melts in your hand. The couple melted their snow on a new house in Beverly Hills, a Picasso, a Packard, and black servants who kept quitting because Alan and Dorothy were prone to drinking all night and sleeping most of the day and expected the help to be on call whenever they were needed. They lived as comfortably as they could, denying themselves nothing. But Dorothy hadn't lost her interest in progressive politics. She joined her friends Donald Ogden Stewart, who had just written Manhattan Melodrama, the first pairing of Thin Man stars William Powell and Myrna Loy, in supporting the Scottsboro Boys, eight black kids who were tried and sentenced to death for the rape of a white woman. The Scottsboro Boys' appeals were a key crusade of the Communist Party, and in Hollywood, publicly throwing one's support behind the boys, as Parker and Stewart did, was equivalent to showing off a party membership card in terms of how you were perceived. Here is where I will note that there are conflicting reports as to whether or not Dorothy Parker ever actually joined the Communist Party. Ring Lardner Jr., a member of the Hollywood Ten, said that she and Alan did join, but were only members briefly and didn't attend meetings. The FBI tried to confirm her membership and could not. I think it's most likely that Dorothy Parker was what was called a fellow traveler, meaning she was openly sympathetic to the communist cause, but not actually a member. I believe that if she did go to meetings, she would have seen really quickly that, though the party spouted rhetoric advocating for equality between the sexes, in practice, women were not treated equally to men by the communist party or by often chauvinistic male communists, and her voice would not have been valued at official party gatherings. She also didn't need the Communist Party itself because she was involved with and gave money to many other socialist organizations and was soon busy forming her own group that was specifically tailored to her own primary issue. Dorothy and Don were concerned about what was happening in Germany, and together they hosted a dinner where Otto Katz spoke powerfully about the threat of Nazism. Some reports call Otto Katz a Soviet agent sent to recruit Hollywood luminaries to the party. More nuanced reports contend that Otto Katz was working for Willy Munzenberg, a German communist who had fled Nazi Germany and was working out of Paris to try to publicize what Hitler was up to and what could potentially happen in a one-party anti-Semitic state. Katz warned that Hitler could inspire a Second World War, and Dorothy took those warnings to heart. She and Stewart, Oscar Hammerstein, and actor Frederick March formed the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. The group published a weekly newspaper and held meetings which were well attended and smiled on by the studios, until word started to spread that the League was a communist front. Membership dwindled a bit, but a passionate core remained. And by the time war was actually underway, the League had roughly 4,000 members. Politics became the driving force in Dorothy's life. She started putting money behind causes and hosting regular dinner parties for the purpose of listening to socialist speakers. She was appalled that writers were regularly expected to produce scripts on spec, meaning that they would only get paid if the draft was used. And even then, there was no security. She started recruiting for the Screenwriters Guild. She abandoned her old wardrobe of designer clothes and started dressing plainly. According to her biographer, Marion Mead, Dorothy, a writer once outfitted in Valentino, now, quote, showed up at Paramount dressed like a Ukrainian farm woman getting ready to climb on a tractor. She no longer had patience for friends who weren't concerned about Hitler and fascism. And most of her friends weren't, and thought Dorothy was exaggerating the threats for effect. In particular, she had a falling out with Robert Benchley, who is now in Los Angeles working as an actor. On one occasion, Dorothy called Benchley a sellout. On another, Benchley told Dorothy to quit 
batting her ingenue eyes at him because she was no longer an ingenue. After that, Dorothy wouldn't talk to him for months. In the midst of Dorothy's radicalization, she and Alan were hired by David O. Selznick to work on an unusual assignment for them, but one which was maybe more suited to the real Dorothy than the light comedies she had been previously hired to spice up. Selznick wanted to make an authentic film about Hollywood. Selznick hired Robert Carson and William Wellman to write a screenplay using the 1932 George Cukor drama What Price Hollywood as inspiration about a naive wannabe actress who falls in love with a big star whose celebrity falls away as his paramours increases. Dorothy and Alan were hired to rewrite Carson and Wilman's script with special attention to the dialogue. But, of course, as we learned in our previous episodes on Selznick, the producer-slash-mogul rarely just hired writers to write and a director to direct and have that be that. When Alan and Dorothy were working on their draft, Selznick would sit in their office until late into the night, dictating dialogue exchanges. Sometimes he'd show up in the morning with script pages that he himself had written overnight. So it's not clear how responsible Dorothy Parker ultimately was for the finished film, but the Selznick produced A Star is Born both set forth Hollywood's favorite structuring myth about itself, that there's only so much room in the rarefied studio heavens, so in order for one star to rise, another must fall away, while also damning the systems that enforce the transformation of human beings into commodities, and provoking sympathy for the workers caught up in these systems. Witness the ingenue's first day under contract to the studio, when the publicity director and studio head give her a new identity and a new name. What's your name? Esther Victoria Blanchett. Greatly appreciating your attention in this matter, very truly. Do you know what her name is? Esther Victoria Blanchett. He will have to do something about that right away. Esther Victoria Blodgett. Well, that Blodgett's definitely out. Let's see. Uh, Esther Victoria, Victoria. Vicky, how about Vicky? Oh, I think that's terribly cute. Let's see, Vicky. Vicky what? Vicky, Vicky. Pronounced Vicky, Vicky. Siesta, Besta, Sesta, Desta, Festa. Oh, that's very pretty. Jester, Hester, Dester, Lester. Vicky Lester. Oh, I like that. Say it. Vicky Lester. Say it again. Vicky Lester. Say it again. Vicky Lester. Say it. Vicky Lester. Say Vicky Lester. Vicky Lester. Vicky Lester. Vicky Lester. Vicky Lester. Vicky Lester. A Star is Born contained a lot of ideas that Dorothy cared about, while also in its glossy, melodramatic finished form and in its journey to the screen, serving as an example of everything she hated about her adopted profession. Perhaps because of this paradox and the self-loathing it sparked, Dorothy sent out mixed messages about the film. In one interview, after seeing it at Radio City Music Hall, she said she was proud to be involved with a movie that strove for and achieved a measure of realism. In other interviews, she'd pretend she hadn't seen it all the way through or dismiss her contribution as negligible. Dorothy and Alan were nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay, making them the first married couple to share a nomination. But they didn't win. A Star is Born was released in April 1937, and the Oscar ceremony at which Dorothy didn't win was just under a year later. A year after that, Dorothy and Alan signed a statement condoning the Moscow trials, which led to the execution of many of Stalin's political enemies. And then Martin Dees, the congressman who created the House Un-American Activities Committee, came to Hollywood, first in 1938 and again in 1940, to investigate the 40-something communists who he insisted were running the movie industry. In fact, there were probably a lot more than 40 communists in Hollywood, but most of them weren't very powerful or in a position to substantially influence the content of movies. As Dees began holding closed-door hearings in his hotel room, questioning the likes of Humphrey Bogart, leftist activists started protesting. When Dees directly attacked the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League as a communist front, Dorothy Parker famously addressed the congressman in abstention. The people want democracy. 
Real democracy, Mr. Dees, she said. And they look to Hollywood to give it to them because they don't get it anymore in their newspapers. And that's why you're out here, Mr. Dees. That's why you want to destroy the Hollywood progressive organizations. Because you've got to control this medium if you want to bring fascism to this country. As we've previously learned, Dees' hearings didn't amount to much. And then World War II broke out. Dorothy and Alan kept busy for the next few years. They wrote the screenplay for Trade Winds, maybe the best of the Tay Garnett glamorous lady on a boat movies. They contributed to their friend Lillian Hellman's adaptation of her play, The Little Foxes. They bought a country house in Pennsylvania while continuing to work in Hollywood. When they were in Los Angeles, they held meetings of the struggling Screenwriters Guild in their living room. In 1937, they signed a rich and short-lived contract with Samuel Goldwyn, and they spent time that fall in Europe, where Dorothy was deeply affected by what she saw of the Spanish Civil War. After they returned to the States, Dorothy was approached by a humanitarian group collecting aid for Spanish refugee kids. She would soon become chairperson of this group, which was later characterized as a communist front. Still, Dorothy's political conversion was unconvincing to many observers, who could not reconcile Dorothy Parker, the activist, with the excess of the Campbell family's lifestyle, the essentially self-obsessed nature of her signature writings, and her tendency toward drunken dramatization. At speaking engagements, when she'd warn of the monstrous ways of the Nazis, she'd be greeted with rolled eyes and charges of bias. If she showed emotion when talking about injustice around the world— it was assumed she was a weepy drunk. By the time the U.S. actually entered World War II to fight the fascist threat that Dorothy had been railing against for years, many of Dorothy and Alan's Hollywood friends had stopped talking to them. Dorothy Parker's biographer, Marion Mead, has put Parker in the camp of writers who would not have had the power to inject their personal politics into the movies they wrote, even if they tried. And she notes that Dorothy would not have tried because she and Alan were too dependent on their salaries to do anything that put their earning potential into jeopardy. Based on my understanding of how the studio system worked while Dorothy Parker was working in it, I'm sure this was basically true. However, for a brief period during World War II, political ideas that Dorothy believed in deeply were able to sit comfortably within films intended to rouse viewers to the cause of the war. That would seem to be the explanation for Saboteur, Alfred Hitchcock's first film made in America with an entirely American cast, from a script originally written by Peter Vertel and Joan Harrison, and rewritten by Dorothy Parker. Saboteur tells the story of a handsome young man named Barry, who works at an airplane factory. When a fire breaks out at the plant, killing Barry's best friend, Barry's blamed for it. It's assumed he's a spy sent to sabotage the important war work taking place there. He believes the real culprit is a shady guy he met that day at the plant, and so Barry goes on the run looking for him. He soon discovers an underground network of fascists, led by a pillar-of-society-type rich guy named Tobin. Tobin turns Barry into the police, but the handcuffed Barry escapes and ends up seeking refuge in a cabin in the woods, occupied by a kindly older blind man. When Pat, the blind man's supermodel niece, shows up, she spots Barry's handcuffs, recognizes him from a radio APB, and insists that her uncle turn him in. Oh. What's the matter, Pat? Have you just seen his handcuffs? I heard them as soon as he came in. Uncle Philip, he must be the man they're looking for. Yes, very probably. But you should have given him to the police. Are you frightened, Pat? Is that what makes you so cruel? But you've got to. He's a dangerous man. Oh, Pat, come on. Mr. Mason may be many things, but he's certainly not dangerous. In fact, I'm not at all convinced that he's guilty. Uncle Philip, it's your duty as an American citizen. It is my duty as an American citizen to believe a man innocent until he's been proved guilty. Pat, don't tell me about my duty. It makes you sound so stuffy. Besides, I have my own ideas about my duties as a citizen. They sometimes involve disregarding the law. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do with him? I'm going to turn him over to you, my dear. And you're going to drive him down to Tim the blacksmith and have those preposterous contraptions 
removed from his wrist. Oh, Uncle Philip, how can I do a thing like that? Because you know I can see a great deal farther than you can. I can see intangible things. For example, innocence. Barry and Pat end up traveling cross-country together. At a high society party that doubles as an emergency meeting for the fascists, Barry tries to warn the partygoers of the threat in their midst. Excuse me. Uh, This may sound sort of crazy. In fact, I don't even know how to start. But this whole house is a hotbed of spies and saboteurs. I'm not being silly, I assure you. Even our hostess, Mrs. Sutton. What's the matter with you, sir? You're drunk. You're not even dressed. What do you say? Oh, he, he thinks I'm drunk. The film ends in a spectacular climax, inside and outside the Statue of Liberty, marking this almost B-movie with a no-name cast as a kind of dress rehearsal for Hitchcock's later, star-studded Technicolor extravaganza, North by Northwest. Aside from a scene in which Barry and Pat seek refuge on a train car occupied by circus freaks, including a baldly fascist little person, it's unclear exactly what parts of Saboteur Dorothy wrote— But the film is full of the concerns that had occupied her off time and consumed her heart since Sacco and Vanzetti. The rights of the accused, not to mention the wrongly accused. The disadvantages of the worker in a society ran by the wealthy and the powerful. The notion that being an American was not about paranoia, but about trust. Regardless of who wrote what, this is a movie in which the hero tries to warn rich people about fascism and is accused of being drunk. For nearly 10 years, that had been the story of Dorothy Parker's life. World War I interrupted and essentially killed her first marriage. And by the way Dorothy acted in early 1942, you would have thought she was trying to write a remake. After Pearl Harbor, she was rarely sober if she was awake. She started taunting Alan for not enlisting. She called him a queer. As she explained it, There were men getting their balls shot off, and here he was in Beverly Hills. Finally, Alan gave in and enlisted as a private. This is what Dorothy had literally been asking for, but it drove them further apart. In the military, Alan found a new identity, one which, much to Dorothy's horror, had nothing to do with her. While abroad, Alan had an affair with a married woman in England. It didn't last, but after it fizzled out, Dorothy refused to take him back. In 1947, they divorced. Dorothy didn't work in Hollywood while Alan was at war, instead throwing herself wholeheartedly into activism. She was not subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947, but she attended the hearings anyway, in support of the Unfriendly 19. She publicly mocked and attacked HUAC, on many occasions, and shamed the Hollywood faction who cooperated, saying, For heaven's sake, children, fascism isn't coming, it's here. But she stayed off the blacklist through the 1940s. Still, with Alan gone, Dorothy's Hollywood career was at an impasse. She made a show of proving that she wanted to be there. Dorothy got super agent Swifty Lazar to represent her, She moved out of the house she and Alan had shared and into the Chateau Marmont. Within a year of the divorce, she earned an Oscar nomination for co-conceiving with Frank Cavett of Smash Up, The Story of a Woman, an alcoholism melodrama conceived as a female-centric version of The Lost Weekend, which gave Susan Hayward the first signature role of her career. This success indicated to Hollywood that Dorothy could come up with hit movies without Alan's help. And in the two years after the first round of HUAC hearings, she worked steadily at Fox. She and Alan got back together and remarried in August 1950 in a big Hollywood to-do attended by Humphrey Bogart and Bud Schulberg. And then, in April 1951, the doorbell rang, and Dorothy answered, and she immediately clocked the two men in suits standing on her doorstep as FBI agents. They started asking questions. Was so-and-so a friend of hers? Did she know that so-and-so was a communist? What about such-and-such? Did she ever see such-and-such at a communist party meeting? Dorothy knew better than to incriminate her friends or herself, and so apparently did her dog, 
who started barking the moments the feds crossed the threshold and didn't stop throughout the whole interrogation. When asked point blank if she had conspired to overthrow the government, Dorothy responded, Listen, I can't even get my dog to stay down. Do I look to you like someone who could overthrow the government? The FBI had already put Dorothy on a list of 400 concealed communists, meaning communists who were savvy enough to deny they were communists while still supporting the communist cause. Dorothy had already been named as a communist by Red Channels, a publication which existed to name names, often without showing any evidence. Huack resumed calling witnesses in 1951, mostly because the limited blacklist that the studios had agreed to under the Waldorf Declaration hadn't quieted groups like the American Legion, which also published lists of suspected subversives and frequently contacted the studios to demand the firing of various creative personnel on moral grounds. The Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals was also still active and still lobbying Congress to help them clean the industry's proverbial house. The 1951 hearings began with actor Larry Parks, a member of the Unfriendly 19. Parks admitted to having been a member of the Communist Party, but he gave an inspirational defense of his right not to incriminate his fellow man. In public. Later, in private session, Parks named names. Edward Dimitrik's testimony followed Parks. He was the first accused communist to name names in an open session. This was in April, so there was plenty of precedent by September when screenwriter and former Communist Party member Martin Berkeley testified and named a whopping 158 names. Among them were Dorothy Allen Lillian Hillman, and her longtime lover, Dashiell Hammett, and Dorothy's close friend, Donald Ogden Stewart, all of whom Berkeley contended were at the founding meeting of the Hollywood branch of the party, which was held at his house. The FBI continued to monitor Dorothy for the next four years. Joseph McCarthy talked about subpoenaing her, but he never did. In 1955, the Bureau closed its investigation into Parker, declaring that she didn't seem to be a security risk. But after Berkeley's testimony at the 1951 hearing, Dorothy Parker and Alan Campbell were unable to find work writing movies. In this climate of stress and fear, their reunion didn't stick. Alan walked out on Dorothy in 1952. After briefly renting out a room to writer James Agee, Dorothy moved back into the chateau and then back to New York. For the first time in a decade and a half, she published stories in The New Yorker and then landed a book review column at Esquire. The latter magazine was inundated with mail, complaining about the hiring of a communist. But Esquire stood by Dorothy for five years. By the late 1950s, Dorothy was in her mid-60s, and she had virtually no assets and not much to show for 40 years' worth of work. Her friend, Edmund Wilson, noted that she had returned to the same kind of life in New York hotel rooms as she had lived in the 20s and early 30s as a much younger woman. It's as if her work in Hollywood and her twice-marrying Alan Campbell had counted for nothing, Wilson wrote in his diary. She might as well have been in fairyland. Finally, in 1961, as the blacklist was withering away, Charles Brackett, an old friend who was now running Fox, invited Dorothy to come back and adapt a play for him as a would-be vehicle for Marilyn Monroe. The catch was that she'd have to work with her estranged husband, Alan, whom Dorothy had never actually divorced for a second time. Dorothy moved into Alan's Beverly Hills house, where they apparently lived as professional roommates. They finished the script, called The Good Soup, and they had high hopes for it. But then Fox fired Monroe, and shortly after that, she died. The good soup was shelved permanently. Dorothy started giving lectures for money. One such event was picketed by 30 members of the American Legion, who even as late as 1962 wouldn't let the Red Hunt end. She was hired as an English department professor at Cal State University Los Angeles, a position she took for the salary, although she had high hopes for academia. Those hopes were swiftly dashed. Her students cared about required credits, not literature. Most of them hadn't heard of her, 
She couldn't effectively communicate with the students, and sometimes she wouldn't show up. She became so frustrated that at one point, in an interview published in the LA Times, Dorothy attacked her students for being stupid and greedy. When she showed up at her next class, she found the students had written on the blackboard the names of each of Dorothy's affiliations with supposed communist fronts. That summer, Dorothy came home one afternoon to find Alan lying on his bed with pills scattered on the floor, his head wrapped in a dry-cleaning bag. Dorothy could not, would not believe it had been an intentional suicide. She ended up back in New York, where her own health started to fade. Dorothy wrote a will to be executed by her friend Lillian Hellman, stipulating that whatever assets she left be donated to Martin Luther King Jr., and should he die, to the NAACP. Dorothy died first on June 7, 1967, when Dr. King got the call telling him he had inherited over $20,000 from a woman he had never met, who was best known for sad, speakeasy poetry written 40 years earlier. The reverend was surprised. But, he said, Parker's gift, quote, verifies what I have always said, that the Lord will provide. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, that's me, with production assistance from Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our audio editor is Henry Malofsky, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. Subscribing to the show on iTunes and rating and reviewing us there helps people find it. You can also tweet about us. Our Twitter handle is at RememberThisPod. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Dorothy was a waitress on the promenade. She worked the night shift. Dishwater blonde, tall and fine She got a lot of tips Well, earlier Been talking stuff In a violent room Fighting with lovers past I needed someone With a quicker wit than mine Dorothy was fast